You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, how are you? Giles, I'm well and probably feeling a lot happier this morning than people in the northern beaches of Sydney. Well, yes, indeed. Yes, um, yes it's, a, it's a bit of a worry. Um, you're not too far from the northern beaches, but um, I guess you'll, uh, we'll have to find out where the dividing line goes down. But um, anyway. Um, <laughs> I suspect we're going to find out very shortly by the time this podcast goes to the air that it's, uh, the dividing line's moved a long way. But let's keep moving. Let's get moving. Look, we've got quite a lot to talk about today. Um, as usual, there's an end-of-year rush as... Um, People um, roll out their announcements that they want to get rid of um, before Christmas and also a little bit of their dirty washing. Um, I guess the um, the biggest event that's actually sort of unfolding as we speak, David, before we go into our special guest, is the um, incident at Liddell um, on Thursday. A unit had a quote-unquote transformer issue. It obviously was a major incident, an injure, a, um, a worker is seriously injured. More to the point, that unit's going to be out for about, um, well, for most of summer, basically, and it caused a emo to uh, call in its um, uh, emergency reserve and dispatch the uh, RERT for the first time this summer. Of course, this is exactly what AGL warned about about three, four, five years ago, David, that if you keep a really clunky old machine going beyond its reasonable use-by date, these are the sort of things that are going to happen. But the uh, government pretty much ignored them. Well, uh, yes, and and, uh, I would take issue with the fact that the major... I'm sure you didn't mean it. The major issue is that the more to the point... The the point is someone has been seriously injured uh, running an old power station. I think that that is the real uh, point. No, I accept that actually, and I, I, I think I probably misspoke. So, um, yeah, it's yes. like it's, no, you're no, quite no, right no, to pick no, me up on no. that one. <laughs> but I think it is important to make the point. Uh, and 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 uh, so going. I mean, I, Liddell's going to go away over time. It's just the suddenness with which these units and trips uh, happen that that causes the problems. I, I personally think that we will get through summer uh, uh, okay. I think there's a lot more capacity in Victoria than there was uh, previously. And basically, there's a lot more wind and solar around in general. And uh, we won't have last year's bushfires either. With a bit of luck, I think it would be most unusual to have two great big bushfire seasons in a row. After all, you burn all the fuel last time, there's less to burn. Um, and, and so, you know, it just uh, points to the sooner we get Liddell out of the system, the happier everyone's going to be. That's right. Yes, of course, there's some issues with um, wind and solar being constrained and uh, well, not producing. Um, it was interesting to see Stockyard Hill. That's the biggest wind farm in um, Australia. It has uh, it's been com- it's mechanically complete. Well, they put the last turbine in. Just about all of them are sort of kind of ready to go, but it's still not generating. It still hasn't got its registration, which is a pretty basic step. Well, it's the essential step you you have to cross before you start generating. Normally, these wind farms would start generating well before they sort of installed their last turbine. Um, uh, is, there, is there a comment to make about this? We don't know the specific details of this wind farm, David, I, but, um, but obviously there's a broader issue here about you know, connections and delays and things. Giles, between Ben Willisey and myself, uh, it's a, uh, Stockyard Hill's a bit of a standing joke as to how long it's taken in to come into the system. Uh, and to be 
you know, a, a, a bit uh, negative. Uh, it's consistent with Origin's general experience of getting stuff built, and they didn't build Stockyard Hill. They've only contracted it. Uh, but uh, but the, that Mortlake power station w was was very two years late from memory when it was uh, built. The gas one, uh, and and there's been a history of uh, it takes uh, been troublesome getting things done in Victoria. I have to say AGL's track record and actually getting its machines built. They mightn't work very well, like uh, MacArthur, but at least <laughs> they get them built. Uh, and running on time. And, and, and Mirables, uh, the other big wind farm in Victoria, between them there's 800 megawatts. It's also taking a while to get going. And, and you know, uh, I, I guess we did ha uh, basically think that both of these systems, I actually thought Stockyard Hill was meant to be, it's over 12 months late. It's well over 12 months yes. late. And in fact, uh, at the uh, Origin Investment Day, uh, Greg Jarvis mentioned that it wouldn't be operational until 2021. So uh, it's not really news, uh, as disappointing as it is. Mm, okay. Look, David, let's get on to some more positive news. Now, you conducted an interview. Um, well, why don't you just introduce our interview? Because it's kind of about the main, I mean, look, hydrogen, that hydrogen economy we've been promised for the last 50 years may finally be coming. It might be clean this time, and that might make it more interesting. Um, tell us who you've interviewed and, and why. Yeah, so I interviewed uh, Josh Gabatas, who, uh, together with Simon Evans, uh, spent six months uh, researching uh, uh, the, the hydrogen economy, that is the demand and supply, uh, and its potential for Carbon Brief. Uh, Carbon Brief is, the, I think, the preeminent uh, carbon news reporting service, uh, and they, they, they have the latest and greatest uh, reports on what the state of the climate is and I guess also what's happening in the modelling world and, and the other innovations and new research. They researched the hydrogen economy. Uh, uh, Josh was one of, one of the authors of that piece and I talked to him about the uh, demand and supply for hydrogen and, you know, I think that we'll, let's listen to what Josh had to say. We're talking to Josh today because a couple of weeks back, uh, Josh was the co-author with Simon Evans of... Uh, a report that had looked over the course of six months at the at the hydrogen economy. Uh, it was a long report, Josh. Was it a lot of a lot of work to put it together? It was, yeah. And, and like you said, we've, we've worked on it for quite a few months. I think um, anyone who's familiar with the, the topic of hydrogen will might have an idea of why that is. I mean, it, it's a very broad, all-encompassing topic that kind of reflects the fact that yeah, as we'll discuss, hydrogen has all kinds of uses and lots of sort of contentious issues around it. So hopefully we can dig into some of that. One of the first things I found that was interesting was that there's a long history, in fact, of uh, hydrogen uh, going to be the sort of next wonderful thing. And then it's sort of sinking back uh, into the depths for a while. Um, I guess we could talk about that as to whether it, it's more... Let me ask at the, outside, at the outset, having done all that work, I guess, do you see it's more hype than reality or more reality than hype? I mean, you know, if, if someone was out there, Josh, with a, offering shares in, in the hydrogen economy, would you be a buyer or a seller and, and, and why? <laughs> um, oh, I'm going to give a really annoying answer because uh, obviously it's, it's just, it's very complicated. I think broadly speaking, um, I, I think now probably is uh, the time for hydrogen compared to previous um, sort of hype cycles and um, previous rounds of enthusiasm for, for hydrogen. Um, as you mentioned, yeah, something that I found really interesting when doing the research was uh, this idea that 
when you talk to people who've maybe been in in this area for longer than I have, or or who just you know read about it, um, people have been discussing hydrogen on and off for decades, uh, at least since the 70s. And actually, we something that is included in our piece is this idea that actually hydrogen goes back much further than that, and there were you know big uh, big hydrogen projects producing it from hydropower dams uh, as, as early as the, the 1920s. Um, it's really just whenever there's lots of cheap power available um, that can be used to uh, to produce hydrogen. Um, and the reason then that now, after sort of rounds of enthusiasm in the 70s, which coincided with um, uh, you know concerns about oil um, and you know the, the the oil embargo from OPEC, um, and then further rounds after that, th those were all sort of tied to uh, concerns about fossil fuels and needing to find something to replace oil. Um, so the focus was, was often in the transport sector. Whereas now, um, what has changed, I suppose, is that the enthusiasm about hydrogen is more tied with the falling costs of renewables and the, the 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 incredible rate at which renewables are are being built and are expected to be built in the near future. Um, so, and also the, the the coinciding with that, the kind of the the pressure from um, climate agreements, cl you know, it, it's climate targets around the world, which basically mean that we're going to have to cut emissions considerably. Um, and not just in the sectors that are kind of easy, you know, relatively straightforward to uh, cut emissions in. So we're going to have to reach those hard to decarbonize sectors like um, heavy industry, uh, you know, shipping, aviation, uh, trucks, and all of these things that kind of the kind of last. So, so, you know, for example, in in the UK, we you know we had a target to. Uh, under the Climate Change Act to cut our emissions by 80%. And since we've increased that to, to net zero, so 100% emission cuts. Um, by, by 2050? We, we by 2050, that is, yeah. Like, we, we quote, I think so, it's... So, um, so, 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 Josh, just, just uh, for, for our Australian listeners, I, I happened to so, do some numbers on what, what Australia would have to do to get to... Uh, zero by 2050, and uh, essentially, if you take a straight line view, we'd have to cut our current emissions by a third by 2030. That is over the next 10 years, and uh, obviously, uh, you know, electricity in, in Australia is just a, a bit over a third of total emissions. So there's a ton of work to be done in other sectors, and, and I, I imagine it's uh, something of the same order of magnitude in, in most other countries, Josh. Exactly, it's that last kind of say uh, twenty percent or maybe more. That's that's a approximate um, uh, of emissions where it's like you know you've done the easy stuff. Obviously, it will still be very challenging, but relatively speaking, uh, and then you get to something where you need something else. There's a, and there's a quote from that from Franz Timmermans um, uh, from the uh, you know European Commission saying, you know, in in the EU's plan to be a sort of climate neutral, a carbon neutral continent. Um, they're going to need something else to decarbonize steel and decarbonize, uh, you know, trucks. Um, and hydrogen could be that because hydrogen 
basically allows you to, to it, it, it can be used as a, a fuel in the same way as, you know, uh, you know oil. Um, to, uh, so in sectors that where really that is more appropriate than electrification, it's still often going to have to compete with electrification. Um, and often, as maybe we'll, we'll talk about, electrification still will be the better option, most likely. But um, otherwise, yeah, hydrogen could be, could be the way to do that. Well, this is the point, Josh. You know, I, 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 I read your article and uh, that made me reread a lot of other stuff I've looked at over the uh, past year or so because it's so difficult with new technologies uh, to understand uh, how much is hype and how much is reality. And I was, must say, I personally was incredibly influenced by the article on the demand for hydrogen, that is where it will be used, by the article by Michael Liebrich, I hope I've pronounced his name right, from, you know, the, the sort of great guru from uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Uh, and he, he, he uh, um, went through each sector of where demand of hydrogen could be and kind of looked at the chemistry involved and the relatively, relative costs. And I must say, I didn't get any sense uh, from reading that article that in the near future, it was going to be easy for hydrogen to displace anything. You know, a lot of the sectors needed very high carbon prices. Um, and, and, and so, I, I, you know, where, where in the end, after your work, would you see the nearest term and or the biggest opportunity for hydrogen is in, in, in your view? Yeah, so I mean, I've read the same article and also obviously written this piece and I, I, I'm i kind of in the same place as you. It, it, it's kind of, there is still tons of uncertainty. I know it's not a satisfying uh, response. And I, what I did find was that I went into it maybe with some ideas about some sectors that were kind of dead certs, um, you know, and the more you look into them, so, for, so okay. So instead of saying uh, which sectors are you know definitely going to you know take up hydrogen, we could you know look at ones that maybe I thought. So, for example, looking at transport, a lot of the hype in the past has been around transport. So first of all, with cars, uh, and now kind of the idea of fuel cell cars, it's it's there's a fairly unanimous verdict, although not from everyone. Um, you know, there's still some companies like. Toyota that are still pushing fuel cell cars, but broadly speaking, um, people agree that's yeah, not going to be the future. It's going to be electric, electric vehicles. Um, Battery, batteries are going to work because there's, there's less, uh, it's, it's just more efficient in the end. Uh, there's just too exactly. many energy just, losses. Exactly. It's, it's just more efficient. Um, there's just more steps involved uh, in, in using hydrogen um, in, in a car. I think I've got some good numbers on the efficiency. It's something like... Uh, I, I can't remember exactly, so I'll, I'll, I'll give it. But yeah, but basically, it's just it's tons more it's tons more efficient to use a, a battery electric car. Um, so then people are saying, well, we we can use hydrogen for sort of uh, big heavy vehicles like trucks. But even there, um, you know, there are things there are other options. So you could directly electrify them with batteries. And some people think that actually that might be better. And some people are suggesting using, you know, overhead wires that you can connect them to. So building a network of uh, overhead wires. To me, that sounded like a, you know, 
that sounds like a big investment, building a network of, of electric wires all over Europe. For that example. won't happen, Josh. Uh, I'll you tell know. you, it won't happen, it won't <laughs> happen in Australia. No, no one's building more no, overhead yeah. wires. We're trying to get rid of the bloody wires, I can tell you. Um, so what about, I, um, I mean, if, if we, the, in electricity production, for instance, I can see as, as we get decarbonisation gets up or, or the percentage of uh, uh, zero carbon generation, particularly from wind and solar, gets very high, up over 80%, then, then you, these sort of wind and solar droughts seem to be a good thing for hydrogen because in my reading, uh, the one big advantage besides being zero carbon that hydrogen has, the one big advantage is it's very low cost of storage. So it could be great to replace gas eventually, but you still got to get the cost down quite a way. Yeah, um, yeah. So we, I did look at the the, the, the storing hydrogen, um, and it does seem like it's uh, it's it could could be a good bet. It's um, not. Uh, it, it can be better than battery storage, but it take, can take up a lot less space, um, and it's better for kind of longer term storage as well. Um, so that is a, an option. I, th I think in terms of using it to um, using storage to power the grid. So people talk about using it to sort of, you know, uh, in a high renewables grid, you can use it to kind of balance things out when there isn't uh, lots of wind or or sun. Um, I think with that, the impression I got from speaking to people is that. Um, the other sectors are sort of likely to come first, and then uh, using storage in that way is is likely to be a kind of after effect. So something you kind of get for free after you've already sort of scaled up the hydrogen economy in in other areas. Um, yes. What about steel, for instance? I mean, uh, you know, and 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 heavy industry. Uh, I guess is using hydrogen for for heat processes, but that's got to compete with electrification. But in things like, um, I don't know, uh, cement is, and steel, uh, these, these are sectors that in Australia are, um, are things to think about because all our iron ore goes into, into steel manufacturing, obviously, and uh, iron ore is our biggest export. And so if the world steel industry finds it tough to decarbonise, that will be a problem for Australia. Um, do, do you feel optimistic about the prospects there? Yeah, steel steel definitely seems like a, an area that um, there there is a lot of promise in. And uh, again, someone someone I spoke to for the piece said that was referring to I can't remember the name. I think it's the Pilbara region of northwest Australia. Is that Pilbara? Uh, Pil Pilbara. That's that's right. And um, he said that that would be probably the kind of optimal place for green steel manufacturer. You've got iron ore being mined, lots of renewable electricity. Um, but, you know, not just in Australia, you know, the, the EU is showing uh, a lot of interest in this. And I think, um, yeah, it, it is, there aren't tons of other options. Um, we can use, uh, we can electrify some uh, steel making. Uh, you can use uh, electric furnaces to, um, but that will be you know, to, to recycle steel, but for kind of virgin steel manufacture, um, we'll, pro we'll probably need something else. Um, and the only thing is that, again, it will just be, it's likely to be more expensive. 
for the time yes. being. And so um, if it's going to compete, say, so in the EU, if we're going to produce green steel in the EU, then we've got to accept that it will be more expensive. And, you know, again, people I talked to were talking about things like a, a carbon a carbon border adjustment to allow it to compete with steel from China, um, for example. Um, yes. But yeah, this but is I've seen, I've seen that as very prices. expensive. Uh, very expensive. I mean, I, I think I've seen prices uh, that required for carbon up at 60, and 60 US dollars a tonne and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, I, mean uh, I think the electric arc steel, which is about 30 to 35 percent, uh, of total steel production, uh, you know, ha has has possibly better prospects. Maybe if we turn around from the demand for hydrogen and and look at the supply side, where it's all about, I guess, firstly, there's the gas industry kind of loves hydrogen because they think they can do carbon capture and storage with it, and maybe mix the mix their brown hydrogen in, into the pipelines. But all of us are kind of thinking about. Uh, zero carbon green hydrogen getting its cost down uh, a lot uh, and we we kind of have i mean did you feel that there was a lot of progress being actually made on that that front or yeah so this is definitely the sort of central one big central debate in in the hydrogen conversation kind of blue blue versus uh, green hydrogen so green being uh, produced from renewable electricity and blue with is uh, from gas or coal with with uh, carbon capture, um, it, 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 I think probably it's likely that a bit of both will be needed. But yeah, there is a lot of skepticism from you know NGOs um, and some scientists uh, because obviously, yeah, as you say, the fossil fuel industry is is pushing uh, the blue hydrogen thing. Um, I think the reality is possibly that um, because you've got to think that hydrogen production. Uh, Green hydrogen production. First and foremost, we need new wind and solar and renewables to just, you know, decarbonize our power system. Um, and so there's concern about maybe like cannibalizing. Someone said uh, some of that success to divert it into producing hydrogen instead. Um, so possibly some blue hydrogen will need to be produced in the interim. But uh, there are concerns about that. I mean, blue hydrogen comes with um, its own problems. It's if you're using carbon capture and storage, it it captures a lot of carbon, but realistically, it doesn't capture 100%. So there's still going to be some emissions from that, and also just from the the gas uh, supply chain. You know, you, you've got methane being leaked. Um, Fugitive emissions. So, uh, yes, exactly that that kind of thing. So uh, as we move towards kind of zero emissions, if we're relying on blue hydrogen too much, that's basically going to be uh, it's not ideal, um, and green hydrogen is would be better. Um, it's really just a case of, I suppose, how how much we can scale up renewable power all over the world. Um, and yeah, p potentially just we'll need to kind of develop a bit of both for the for the time being, and um, with a focus on green hydrogen ultimately. Um, and in terms of kind of costs, yeah, blue blue hydrogen obviously. If you if you've got most the vast majority of hydrogen produced today is made from fossil fuels, that's really important to know. Um, and if we then add carbon capture to that, it, you know, it is just going to be more expensive than producing it from fossil fuels. Um, 
so, uh, so you know, and then and then on top of that, you know, electrolysis producing with electrolysis with renewable electricity, um, that too is is more expensive. Uh, the costs are projected to sort of come down quite significantly in the coming years, but um, yeah, it's going to need a bit of help to be uh, competitive. Yes, and every every country in the world, I think, is is sort of got on the on the on the bandwagon. I don't recall ever seeing so much universal hype in my own sort of, I guess, uh, semi-cynical. Uh, not that I ever am a cynic, but it seems to me that everyone that missed out on the wind and solar boom, uh, uh, including the oil and gas industry, has decided that the you know hydrogen is the last chance saloon, and they're <laughs> not not going to yeah, miss out. Right. But if you want to be a hydrogen exporter, which is the only real thing for Australia, uh, then one of, you know, firstly, we have to compete with every other country's domestically produced hydrogen. And so our hope is that uh, it will be Asia. Uh, and I personally believe that Asia, a lot of it will go for offshore wind and make their own hydrogen, at least in part. But we come to that other great bugbear of hydrogen, which is the, the transport cost. Uh, I've seen some research in Australia now suggesting that uh, 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 mixing it with ammonia or converting it to ammonia, uh, making, making ammonia, transporting the ammonia which, and then reconverting the ammonia back into hydrogen and nitrogen might be the way to do it. Did, did you feel after doing your work that there was, that the people, there was a consensus on, on, on the best way to, to transport hydrogen? Yeah, it definitely uh, depends on where you are in the world. So, um, yeah, for Australia, obviously, if you're trying to get it to Japan, um, it, it, it probably does. Well, it, yeah, it makes you if need to ship it in some way. Um, you know, in, in Europe, we can rely on pipelines probably, and I think up to something like 1,500. According to the IEA analysis, found that um, up to around 1,500 kilometers, I think, gas pipelines. Uh, just make more sense, but beyond that, um, you're going to need to ship it. Shipping hydrogen is expensive um, because it, uh, it you need to lower it, you need to bring it to very low temperatures, and um, also it takes up a lot of space. I think it takes five times as much space as fossil fuels on a on a ship. Um, and then ammonia also takes up a lot of space, um, but it's only it's slightly less. It's like three three times as much. Um, and also, there, you know, ammonia is already shipped around the world, so there is already kind of infrastructure to do this because ammonia is used in fertilizers and you know other applications. So um, yeah, I think it does seem like ammonia is an option for transporting hydrogen, and uh, for for the kind of distances you're talking about. So to yeah, this this kind of a, agreement between Australia and Japan, um, but. It, Possibly ammonia is the one, um, but that's yeah. It it all remains to be seen. There, there's a lot of talk about this, and you know, a lot of agreements being signed at the moment with you know European nations agreeing deals with North Africa to produce electric to produce hydrogen there and ship it over to supply Europe. And like you say, Australia, New Zealand, Chile, all developing their strategies based on exporting all of their abundant renewables um but it's still early days i, I think hydrogen uh, hydrogen i think japan launched its first hydrogen transport vessel uh last year so uh yeah a long way to go still 
Well, Josh, I think we've pretty much got to the uh, end of our allotted time on this. Listening to you talk, I, I, you haven't really convinced me to, like I said at the beginning, to rush out and buy any hydrogen shares. I'd still put them in the uh, highly speculative uh, uh, category myself. Don't put the rent money on them. Are there any uh, kind of uh, sort of uh, final final thoughts that that we haven't covered that you'd like to like like to give to say? I guess just on that, you know, we talked to maybe um, 25 uh, experts for this piece, and there was a consensus that to get to net zero, to achieve kind of ambitious climate action, that hydrogen is needed. So, you know, it, I, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. I think the there's still a lot of uncertainty. The uncertainty is largely around where exactly it will be applied. Um, both like in terms of sectors and you know which countries will will take will take the lead on it um that all remains to be seen i think it's you know a lot of change is going to happen over the next decade and i guess we'll just have to wait and see and see if it's not just another round of of hype thanks very much uh josh for for all the work and 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 sharing the thoughts uh with our listeners on the podcast uh, cheers no worries thank you and uh, that's Josh Gabaitis from Carbon Brief. And um, I do recommend um, people, um, um, after listening to that, actually read in detail the Carbon Brief article on hydrogen. Um, it is, um, as David says, the Carbon Brief is an excellent publication, and this is great detail and a fantastic report. And um, there's another there, there's another piece that you recommended people read as well, um, yes, Michael Liebrich. Uh, uh, Michael Liebrich, who I think is probably the, the number one author, in, in truth be told, in all things to do with electricity and decarbonisation, um, who's one of the sort of great father figures uh, at uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Uh, he wrote two articles on the supply and demand for hydrogen, and uh, it's the supply article. Everyone knows the talk about the demand, sorry, the supply of hydrogen and getting the cost down, but it's the demand for hydrogen. Where's its best use case and, and when is that going to come? And what does hydrogen compete with? You know, in, in, in industries like steel, in, in shipping, in aviation, uh, in, other, in, um, in, in replacement of heat, uh, for using gas for heat, you know, what are the goals that hydrogen has to achieve? And, and that is just a brilliant article that covers a, a lot of big business uh, huge industries and talks about the basic uh, science, if you like, that under, underpins the, uh, how steel is made, for instance. Uh, and if you don't read anything else over Christmas uh, uh, and you're interested in the future of hydrogen, then I'd recommend the, the Demand for Hydrogen article by Michael Liebrich. In between the Christmas carols, of course, yes. No, um, it's, um, it's, it's a very good article. Look, it's interesting. Look, there's obviously people in Australia um, do believe in the future of the hydrogen economy. Um, South Australia this week came out with a new climate plan, which is talking about a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. But more interestingly, a 500% um, a renewable energy <laughs> Um, production by um, by that same time, um, which indicates for five times its um, annual grid demand. So it's obviously looking for exports either sort of to other states or to overseas. And look, some of that might be through New Link, some of it might be through hydrogen, ammonia, and other things like that. Um, we also saw the Australian energy market operator put out its new sort of um, assumptions for its modelling, which will form the basis of the next integrated system plan. It's now actually modelling even quicker scenarios than it did in the step change last year which led us to 94% renewables. It's now talking about an even quicker 
um, uh, transition in the electricity grid and also Australia reaching zero emissions by 2040. One of the large, one of the big plays in that is the hydrogen emerging and on-grid hydrogen. So certainly a lot of people are getting very excited about it. Um, the, the EMO, um, the EMO uh, report assumed a 70% to 80% fall in the cost of electrolyzers over the next 10 years, um, following pretty much the same patterns as solar PV and battery storage. Um, so, um, Couple but of as you say, well, yes, but your website also carried an article showing that uh, Japan is going to be betting on offshore wind. Exactly. Uh, uh, with it talking about having 40 or 50 gigawatts uh, at, at some point in time in the future. And, and, and I've actually looked at the costs of doing that. And I, I think Japan has fantastic potential uh, for offshore wind. So myself, if I was an investor, I would be very cautious about actually pressing the button to go ahead with hydrogen exporting capability. And particularly until the transport mechanism has been sorted, um, there's some talk that it may be better to convert hydrogen to ammonia uh, and then reconvert the uh, ammonia back to um, uh, nitrogen and hydrogen at the destination point. But, you know, that's all fantastically expensive. And even if we get that big reduction in the electrolyzer costs, we're still going to be looking at uh, a fuel that's the equivalent of about 14 Aussie dollars a gigajoule compared with gas that uh, will, will likely be less than that into the foreseeable future. So. You know, it's a it's a big task in front, but no doubt there is going to be a role for 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 hydrogen. And the the other thing I think, uh, Giles, that is worth talking about is is the sort of gradual um, murmurs in the wind about Australia moving to net zero uh, by 2050. The fact that uh, we weren't invited to a conference is a kind of a slap across the face. I have to say that China doesn't even report its carbon emissions. So anyone that thinks that China's a, 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 a good person in this is really very mistaken. Uh, but but uh, even so, we're, we're going to get that shift. And then the, the question is what it actually means in terms of policy. But uh, as soon as you say that, you know, the signal is important. And if you make the signal, then you have to, then the questions will legitimately come. Well, how are you going to implement the policy? And this is where I think the electric vehicle uh, side of things really needs, uh, everyone needs to get behind this a lot more because uh, notwithstanding the lack of models and, and all the other issues that there are, in the end, it's a great opportunity to reduce uh, carbon emissions in Australia. And it doesn't seem to me that there's any great downside because there's no competing industry. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, actually. There's the um, the complete indifference from the federal government. I mean, we thought that um, you know the city statements during the last election campaign, when Labor came out with a perfectly perfectly reasonable target of 50% um, electric vehicles by 2030, um, encouraged largely through the use of fleets, which would in turn then generate a second-hand market. We thought that was quite reasonable. Um, the coalition government uh, made some pretty silly comments about the end of the weekend and stealing your utes and you can't go camping and towing boats. And we thought that was all just sort of coalition pitter patter. Oh, sorry, election pitter patter but um they seem to have um, actually believe what they said at the time and they're just not interested at all in doing anything concrete to actually encourage electric vehicles there's probably not much they can do about wind and solar being installed in the grid at the moment but um they're certainly not interested in helping electric vehicles and that's very disappointing and you wrote a very good piece this week i'm um, just pointing out that this well, is probably well, are, their worst decision so far well there are other uh, lots of other pieces pieces that that, that uh, have been published on renew economy more or less dealing with the same issue and because it's it's pretty obvious you don't have to be uh, as smart as Keith Pitt to actually work it out, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, I mean, it's it, you know you can sit there and look at the problem and think that this is this is a rational area for the federal government to attack. We import uh, all of our oil essentially. I mean, we actually do export oil, but 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 uh, but we import a, a net total of a, uh, uh, close to a hundred percent. 
Um, and, uh, you know, there's lots of mining industries like lithium that could get a big boost uh, from an electric vehicle. Uh, you could probably do something in domestic manufacturing. I don't know what, even if it's re reassembling uh, the vehicles. I mean, electric cars in the end are a lot simpler to build uh, than, 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 than petrol cars. So it's a kind of easier industry to get into. I mean, there are just lots and lots of reasons to do it. But I mean, to me, amongst the biggest ones, leaving aside the actual cost of the oil, is energy security. You know, if, if, if we ever have a, have, a, have a war again, heaven forbid, I mean, you could just cut off the oil supply to Australia and we'd surrender within in a couple of weeks at the way, you know, we could avoid that. Yeah, well, not even a war. I mean, any just sort of um, trade blockade and um, um, it, um, the uh, supplies cut off pretty quickly. Absolutely, David. Well, look, I'm, look I thoroughly agree. I won't argue with any of that. Um, anything else to sort of um, to mention before we, we wrap up? We're coming back for one more go next week um, to wrap up the year. But uh... No, Giles. Well, the only other thing, Giles, is that uh, I think we're going to move into uh, putting my investment banking hat on. I think we're moving into an era of uh, market consolidation and lots of transactions are going to take place uh, over the next 12 or 18 months. We already saw this year too the demise essentially of the listed renewable sector with, uh, with takeovers of Infogen and, and uh, WinLab. Uh, Tilt has uh, uh, made an announcement that, it, that it's been is considering its future has been considered. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there'll be lots and lots of uh, solar assets uh, that people will be thinking about as well. Absolutely. And um, it's, it's a bit sad, actually, we use the, we lose those listed companies because it's about our only insight into the um, electricity and the energy space and the renewable space because they're sort of obliged to tell their investors when there are project delays or problems or cost overruns or liquidated damages claims and things like that. Without that, we never, ever find out. So the more companies that go private, um, the more opaque these already opaque markets um, become. So... Um, that's a pity from that point of view. David, um, thank you very much. Thank you to all our listeners. Once again, thank you very much to our sponsors, uh, Pylon and Evergen. Uh, thank you very much for supporting us over the last six months. And I believe they're continuing into the new year, which is wonderful news. And we thank them for that. And um, one more go next week, um, David, before the end of the year. Yes, indeed. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.